If you would turn in your word in, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's stand together as we read from God's word. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, who writes, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses." Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the word of the Lord. Now, let's pray. Lord, guide us in a, a challenging topic this morning. I pray that you would Direct our eyes of faith to the foundation that is sure and steadfast and unfailing. That, that we may have unshakable confidence in you um, in spite of whatever we may face in this life. Lord, please help us. We are frail. We are weak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So... The topic of this passage builds on a sermon I gave from a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, just a quick review. We talked about faith, and I, in particular I was interested in the, the number of passages in, in the Gospels in which Jesus rebuked his disciples for having little faith and wrestled with that a bit, tried to explore what was going on there. And then in contrast to that were several examples of people, not disciples, not even Jews, who exhibited in fact, at one point, astonished Jesus with their faith. So it was an attempt through the sermon to kind of understand what, what, what faith is, what it means to, to have faith in God. And then in the conclusion, or the last part of the, of the sermon, I talked a bit about the connection that Jesus makes between faith and prayer, particularly as he is now no longer physically present with us. Prayer, prayer becomes a really critical part of our demonstration of faith in God. So at the end of that service, someone came up to me and asked, because I think I had mentioned the service, I, I, I had to think of another, pass, another topic for the next time I preach. What about this? What about those times when prayers aren't answered? So here we are. <laughs> this is a difficult topic. This is a huge question to ask. Because on the one side, we, we want to believe the promises of God. And they're extravagant promises. 
If you ask anything, I will give it to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. There's these, again and again, there's this sort of try me and see what I will give you. And we want to believe that. We have no reason not to believe that. that. That should come with belonging to God, being God's people. Not only that, we want to see answers to our prayers. The prayers that I prayed this morning on our behalf. We want to see those prayers answered. We want to see Pat and Barbara healed. We want to see peace come to the people of Ukraine. We want to see our government be ruled by wise and godly men and not fools. We want to see Mount Vernon turn and bend their knee to Christ. We want those things, don't we? We desire those things. So we're not just asking for our own sake or for the sake of those we're praying for, but we're also asking that for his sake. And yet, I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands, how many of us have had prayers go unanswered? And how many prayers? That's, what do we do with that? That's a dilemma. Because we're, we're stuck. We're, we're stuck with either, is, is God to blame? Did, did he fail to come through? Are we, is this really what we we've fear it might be, that we're just talking to the ceiling? There is no one there to hear our prayers or no one there that can do anything about what we ask? Or is the problem with me? Or worse, and we talked about this a little bit last time, and I think this is something that, that is very native to us, and I think it is, is a, it's symptomatic of our struggle to understand what faith is. We supplement prayer with other contingencies. We cover our bases, hedge our bets. We've got a backup plan in case God doesn't come through. But think about what we're saying when we do that. That, That's not trusting in God. That's giving very little trust to him, in fact. Imagine if someone said that to you. I'm going to lend you some money and I expect you to pay that back, but in the meantime, I'm going to get a second job. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks heaps. Well, that's only one, one way in which this could get worse. Second, it could lead us to question our own faith. Am I even a Christian? It is amazing to me how quickly my own inner thoughts can go in that direction. Am I, have I been fooling myself? Have I been presuming stuff? Am I not understanding how this works? Or am I just so lost and I don't even realize it? I'm just believe in a mirage. Or it could lead us to question God himself, which is the worst place of all to be. Does God love? Does God care? Is God able? So, so this is a huge question and not an easy question to answer. So if you want to pray silently for me, I pray that I can do justice to how scripture talks about this. So I want... I turned to Scripture, and I, I surveyed as best as I could um, within, within the limits of, of my own time and ability. And I'd say one thing right off the bat is that Scripture doesn't say nearly as much to the specificity that we want as we would wish. There, there is not a template in there that says, when your prayers aren't answered, this is what is happening. It gives us lots of examples we get mixed in with some prophetic warnings in the middle section and some, some more personal examples and teaching in, in the New Testament as well. But, 
But by and large, it's hard to get a beat on this. So I, I do want to set some expectations right off the bat. I do want to answer this as well as Scripture allows, but there's going to be limits to our ability to perceive and understand the thoughts and workings of God. There's going to be a part of this quest to understand why God sometimes doesn't seem to answer prayers with, we don't know. And that's God's domain. That's God's prerogative. He doesn't owe us answers. And I present to you the book of Job as an argument. Job's a remarkable passage. You feel for Job. I, I just, I find myself more and more on Job's side as he goes along. It's like, I, I get what he's saying. And what's the final resolution of the story of Job? Who's God, Job? I don't owe an explanation here because you're not me. You're not like me. I made you. And he doesn't say it with that kind of ferocity or unfeelingness, but it is striking that God's point in responding to Job's what's going on is know that I am God and you're not and be satisfied. So we can only go so far as, as he allows in his word for us to perceive. But the other expectation with that I want to follow up with that our purpose here should not be to put God on trial but to learn how to respond in faith. So, I'll try and fill that out a little bit more later, but, but in what I surveyed, I saw three main reasons given for unanswered prayer in Scripture. So forgive me that this is such a, a very basic template of a topical sermon. I, I don't want it to be as boring, and, but, but it's just helpful for the purpose of what we're trying to do. Um, three main reasons. First of all, as an act of judgment. So an example, that would be King Saul. We see in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel said to Saul, this is when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and calls up Samuel's spirit because he's getting nothing from God. And Samuel, spirit of Samuel responds to Saul saying, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Because of Saul's unwillingness to obey God, God cuts him off. I'm done. No more. I want to follow up that example by saying, if you are putting your faith in Christ, that is not your fear when your prayers are not answered. God is not judging you as he judged, Paul, as judged Saul. That is, that is not the answer to your question. But the other two, I think, are ones that are more in our wheelhouse. So that's the first one, an act of judgment. Second is an act of discipline. James 4 is the exemplar of this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him an enemy of God. Come back. The reason why you are frustrated in what you ask is because God is keeping you from pursuing your selfish desires. But in that is a call to repent. Come home. Change your ways. Stop pursuing the world any longer. 
So an act of judgment, an act of discipline, and finally, God doesn't answer prayer. One of the reasons for unanswered prayer is that is an act of grace, and that is the passage that we're looking at today. So turn your attention back to this passage. I want to do a little bit of background work because there's, there's a lot of context here that's actually important to, to what Paul says in the passage at hand. Paul, this is in the middle of a passage which Paul is dealing with a, a really challenging situation in Corinth. While Paul has been away, this is a church that Paul has personally invested in and built up over the years. While he's been away, there have been these, these certain self-proclaimed Christian leaders that had come to town and had made a huge impression on the Christians there, had really won them over, and they were, they were teaching and, and preaching and, and guiding the people, but they were, in doing so, they were also attacking Paul. They're attacking both his teaching and his character. Paul, in response to that, is, is in a section where he's defending himself. And it's interesting to see the language here. Paul, this is, Paul's not doing this like we imagine theologians operate. He's not doing it in a monotone with lots of careful points. If you read how Paul is responding here, there, there is a passion, there's an emotional content to what he's doing. There, there's a, you, get a, you get a sense that there is a sense of frustration, a, 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 a touch of righteous anger, but also a, a fearfulness that if he does not do what he is going to do in this section, these people might be lost. They might be turned away. He sees these people, these, these, what he, he refers to as super apostles, but, but as you read the whole of the letter, that's, that's not a complimentary label. He is mocking them, maybe even using their own self-designation. Maybe they came in presenting themselves as super apostles. You have Peter and Paul and John, we're better. I mean, that's part of their presentation. So Paul uses super apostles here, I think, in a very sarcastic or ironic way. But in other places, he calls them false prophets and teachers of a false Jesus, false gospel. These are a threat but in this section, out of love and out of concern for the Corinthians, Paul feels compelled against his will to defend his name and his ministry. And so he, he, in doing so, though, he presents this very strange resume when you think about it. If you are in a distant battle with opponents who are saying, you don't, you're only in it for the money, you're really not that spectacular of a teacher, you really don't know as much as you think you do, um, don't listen to this guy. What does he really know anyways? Okay, he's Paul and he's got a great testimony, but other than that, he's really of no account. Insert your name. What would head the list of your response to that? Paul goes with what he suffered. It's fascinating. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, because we're Christians, because we know have some idea of Paul, this doesn't strike us as odd. 
But if you're trying to convince somebody and they're not quite sure what to think, this sounds like, Paul, you need to find another line of work. (laughs) Wake up! And often Christians talk like that, don't they? All these bad things are happening. At what point, Paul, are you going to listen to God? But he sees this as the resume of his validity as an apostle. He's focusing on his weaknesses rather than his strengths. I think, that, I think there's four things here that he's doing. Like one, he's contrasting himself with these so-called super apostles. He's not going to boast like they do in their greatness. I'm not here to talk about myself. If I'm going to talk about myself, I'm going to talk about what I'm not. I've suffered, not like these guys. Second, he's providing proof that he did not use his apostleship in contrast with his opponents to enjoy the good life. This was not a pleasure cruise. I was not staying in hotels. I do not have the best of food, best of clothes, best of friends. I am not an influencer. My life is one of suffering and deprivation, hardship, pain, loneliness for your sake. Third, he's providing proof, I'd say, of his genuine love for the, Christ, for the Corinthians there. Look what I've endured to bring you Christ. Look what I've endured to bear with you through all these years, through all the challenges, for your sake. I suffered for you. Which of us, between me and these super apostles, truly loves you? Think about it. Then lastly, I think he's doing this to set up the contrast with what comes next. God's delivered him from all these things he's just listed. But then this happened, and this is the passage that we're concerned with. So now into into chapter 12. Paul describes this person who has an amazing spiritual experience. He's caught up into paradise. And, and, and Paul does something interesting here that I'm still not settled on what I'm, how we should think about this. Was Paul talking about an actual other person that he knows really closely, or was he talking about himself? It's not entirely clear. He, he jumps into third person, which is odd for Paul. But, but, the, but the follow-up to what he, rece- what he received as a result of these visions seems strange if he's not talking about himself. That makes sense. So, so I'm going to take this as he's talking about himself. And he, 14 years ago, was given the privilege of seeing and hearing something indescribable. And, and here's, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, this could be Paul's trump card in his justification. In addition to all these things I've suffered, I've been given the privilege of going and seeing heaven. Bam. Top that. But instead, and he could have used that not just, not just as the experience itself, but also the proof that if you want to know whether or not I am truly an apostle, here's God's stamp on me. But instead... Even though he'd been given this, he was hit with what he calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. 
which again, there's all sorts of speculation about what this might have meant, but it suggests, at the very it seems to suggest some sort of painful physical condition, which when you consider all that Paul suffered up to this point, think of that list I read to you. This is not like, you know, a sore back or, or bad eyes. This is significant. Paul's familiar with pain. So his, his threshold's up, and this is enough for him to want it gone. Enough. But also, in addition to the pain, as I read it, it seems that the other thing that, that this brought is weakness. And if he's competing with these super apostles, God, help me out here. I don't want to be weak in the face of these guys. Maybe he was, maybe he was laid out because of this. I don't know. Maybe incapacitated him in some way. But how can he be weak at a moment like this? He needs to project strength in order to win out over these super apostles, to win the people of, his, of Corinth back to him, back to Christ. And so Paul prays, please take this away. Three times. I, and I, I have a couple questions about that. One, was that only three times? Uh, those of you who have suffered something, that, that's usually, that's low end. Second question is, we're not told how long he prayed, for how many years he prayed. It was this breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and nothing happened. That would, be, that would be torment for most of us today. But was this weeks, or months, or years that he prayed, God, take this away. I'm done. I'm weary. I'm tired. This is affecting my work. It's keeping me from doing what I love to do, which is making you known. How long? And God said, no. which I'm going to take as given that Paul is a human being like we were. And I think it's safe for us for the moment to kind of jump into his headspace for a, a bit and consider, can you imagine what that would be like to hear that? I've suffered for you for how long? I've gone wherever you've led. Where's my reward? Where's my answer? Haven't, haven't I earned this? Now, that, that might sound extravagant, and then we're putting something on Paul that we don't know for sure the way he thought, but isn't that how we would think? I've been faithful. I've done my job. I've showed up to church. I've paid my tithes. I've, I've said no to things I knew were contrary to your will. I've sacrificed. I've suffered. Why won't you answer? Is this the thanks I get? All those years of faithful service, all those years of sacrifice and suffering for his sake, was there a part of Paul that wondered, what do I have to do? Where are you? And then Paul, kind of woven through this section, tells us what his response is to all this. He rejoices. He rejoices in the unanswered prayer. He's not just content, he's pleased. There's no sense of resignation. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. Who am I? There's a satisfaction. There's a joy. There's an understanding 
of his purposes, even though what he desired most was not given to him. I think, I think there's a, a couple ways in which this came about. I think one, he brings up, he mentions God's, the word of God came to him. And there's some debate over whether this is some sort of a personal God speaking to him or maybe something through God's word as he's reading. It's not really clear, but I think, I think leaving that open is helpful for us. Otherwise, the tendency will be, well, then we need God to speak to us like that is then we'll understand what's really going. Otherwise, we just have the Bible. The Bible has God's word. The Bible is God's word. It speaks to us, doesn't it? Paul gained new perspective of God through his word. Through his word, he was reminded that in spite of what he was suffering, God remained the almighty king of kings. My grace is sufficient for you is a statement of strength and presence. I'm here. You are not dealing with this alone, Paul. The universe is not empty. It is not echoing with your pointless prayers. I'm here. I am God. I hear you. And I can heal you. You're not alone. God's not missing in action. And through his word, he was assured of God's favor and God's purpose and God's help. My grace is enough for you. It's a statement of favor. Paul, you're not, this is not punishment. You haven't done anything wrong, so set that aside. But this is what you need. My grace is enough for you. I've given you myself. I've given you Christ. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. You have everything you need, Paul. I am with you through this. I'm not launching thunderbolts from afar. I'm here. I'm present. I'm supplying you with what you need, even though it wasn't what you wanted. And then purpose, your weakness in my purposes is to be the setting for the display of my strength. I don't want you to be strong, Paul. I don't need you to be strong. In order to show my strength, I am going to do it through your weakness. Do you understand? Do you get it? And Paul's perspective completely changed. I've said this before. I I would highly recommend spending more time on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Forgive me if I've said this before, but I think it it bears repeating. I think oftentimes we, we think about the renewal of our mind be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that that is simply changing our mind on things that are sinful versus things that are good. I think it's a wholesale change of, do we see the world as though God actually exists? Do we understand that God, do we look at the world through eyes that understands that God is present, God knows, God sees, God is powerful, God is bringing things about to his purposes, or do we see a world that's largely vacant of that and God's somewhere behind Saturn, just hanging out? That he's here, that he's working, that he's bringing things about in ways that we can't even imagine. I mean, even, even just the thought, even just to step back and realize that how we think of how things should be runs along such a narrow channel when God is working across a whole spectrum of lives and circumstances 
and situations. We are so clueless to all that God is doing. Even if you were to explain it to us, would we be able to understand? And as a result of this, uh, let's see. So, so, okay, so, sorry. Paul gained a new perspective of God through his word. And then second, through his word, Paul also gained a new perspective of himself. He came to realize that the distance between himself and the false prophets was not as great as it might have seemed. And in fact, Paul seems to be saying here, if God had not done this, if God had not answered If God had answered my prayer, I could have become like them. Because I'm not that far away. It would be easy to throw my apostleship around like they do. It would be easy for me to proclaim my strengths as an apostle. Don't we feel that in ourselves? We can take virtually anything. We can take the virtue of humility and become national speakers on humility. Make millions off of it. Right? We just have that bizarre capacity to proclaim Christ and then set him aside and talk about ourselves. Talking about Christ. And and Paul seems to be brought to realize this. I would have boasted in myself if God had answered my prayer. God was showing his understanding and kindness by not giving Paul the answer that he desired. He saved Paul from himself. So he rejoices in boasting in his weakness. How am I like the super apostles? I'm not like them. They're great, they're mighty, they're smart, they're wise. I'd be willing to do whatever God's called me to do. And God has done it all. I'm not the great and mighty Paul. I'm Paul. God is a great and mighty God. And I am happy to give him that place. So I said back at the beginning, like this is, this is the problem. It's like, how do you take that and make that a template for our own Seeking of the answer to this question. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you four, four statements that hopefully you can see from what we've just looked at that I think are, are helpful to apply this. But it will, it's, it's in the realm of explaining who the, actual, uh, what, who the actual person bearing 666 in Revelation is today. It's like this... It's beyond my capacity, so please accept my weaknesses. So here we go. Applications. Here's what I think we can take from this. First of all, whether my prayers are answered or not, I can know that God is real, that God is faithful, that God is wise, that God is good, and he is more than enough to meet any request I bring to him. Amen? He is real. He is what he declares himself to be. If my prayer is not answered, I can know that. I can be assured of that. that. That reality is not contingent on whether I get my prayers answered. That exists before I even was born to utter any prayers at all. He's always existed. He's without beginning or end. He's incomparable. And I can stand on that platform. I can trust in that. Second, 
Whether God answers my prayers or not, I can know that all that God does will eventually and ultimately prove his character as described in Scripture. That, that for me, helps. Especially when we get, I mean, you know, sometimes we, we pray silly prayers like, God, you know, please make the next string of traffic lights go green so I can get to work on time. Um, those, are not, those are frivolous prayers. And sometimes God allows that to happen. Um, but there are serious prayers. There are prayers having to do with life and death. The prayers that have to do with spiritual life and death. There are real prayers that don't always get answered, do they? I don't understand that. I don't understand why he wouldn't. Why he wouldn't heal from cancer or COVID or dementia or what have you. I don't know why he doesn't always seem to answer the prayer of a child that's gone away from the Lord to bring him back or to bring her back. I don't understand those things. There's no explanation there. I don't understand why he doesn't answer dramatically in places like Ukraine right now with the horrific things that are going on there. Don't you care? Do you feel some of that? But, but for us as Christians, whether God answers my prayer or not, I can know and I have to know that all that God does will eventually and ultimately prove his character as declared in Scripture. His goodness will be seen someday in this. His wisdom will be seen. His faithfulness will be seen. His righteousness will be seen. Even while we grope for answers and struggle to understand. We can trust that, can't we? Actually, we have no choice. We must trust that or else... What hope do we have? And what does Jesus then really mean if that's not true? Third, whether God answers my prayers or not, I can know that without fail, God knows me and loves me and will take care of me. This is the confidence of a Christian. We are united in covenant with God. We are united with Christ. We are His and He is ours. Regardless regardless of whether he answers our prayers or not, that is fixed and unchanging. Do you believe that? You know he's not getting a little extra out of you because somehow Jesus' death was insufficient for your sin. Sometimes he allows consequences to fall on you, but that's, that's also necessary at times for us to learn because sometimes that's how we need to learn. At least I do. But, but his love for us is, as the scriptures say, steadfast, unfailing, never ending. His patience is steadfast, unending, never failing. He will never leave us or forsake us, even in those moments when he doesn't answer our prayers. And then lastly, whether God answers my prayers or not, I can know that he is unfailingly committed to making me more and more like my blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is working for our good. He's using these circumstances to grow us somehow. 
It's not clear how he's going to do it at times. It doesn't make sense at times. I mean, I mean, it refers back to Job. That came at the cost of the lives of his daughters, the loss of his livelihood, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his own health. For a character lesson? I did all this so you learned to trust me more, Job? Seems excessive. But maybe that's what it takes. Maybe we're really that hard-hearted. Maybe we're really that stubborn. Maybe we're really that blind. And maybe it wasn't just for Job's sake that he did this. But ours. But I have no doubt, and you should have no doubt, that when, when all of this is over, when the curtain is finally drawn back, that we will, I believe, have enough capacity to see and understand what God was doing in those moments when we wondered, is he doing anything at all? And we will praise him. And we will rejoice in him. And we give him glory, not because we have to, because we will understand then, I get it. You see a little bit of that spirit, if I could just, as an example of that, in, in Romans 9 and following, where Paul is looking around his fellow Jews why won't they believe? This gospel is going out. Gentiles are believing and the Jews are shutting their hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? What do I have to do? I would die and wish myself accursed for their sake. But then the aha moment. God hardened their hearts so that the Gentiles could believe and in time the Gentiles will be able to see that these people are worshiping the God that they claim to know and will become jealous of them and so also be brought back to faith. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who is his counselor? Who has given him a gift and they must be, that he must be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. My hope is that you don't hear some sort of cruel, short, just deal with it. Or just take it because it's good for you. Or God doesn't care about your feelings. Just suck it up. My hope is that you turn to the Lord in hope and confidence that nothing, nothing is out of order, even in those moments when he doesn't grant us what we desire legitimately, rightly, that he is doing and acting in ways that when we will be able to understand, we will see the immeasurable wisdom and goodness of all that he does for our sake and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, may we trust you more. May we learn to root ourselves in your character, your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your infinite goodness and mercy and love that we can weather all the unanswered prayers, difficult circumstances, questions, disappointments, pain, with hope, with hope in you. Lord, I, I pray that we would, like Paul, gain a perspective of you through your word. 
that in our sufferings, in our questions, in our pleas, in our wrestlings, in our struggles, that you are there, ruling, directing, guiding, forgiving, saving, bringing things about to your glorious conclusion where all of this sin and curse will ultimately be done and all will be made new. But also, Lord, may we gain through your word a new perspective of ourselves. We do not know what we ought to pray for. We are skimming the surface of our true needs. And may we have the patience and trust with you, Lord, for you to answer what we ask you according to your wisdom and your purposes, because they are far better than ours. So Lord, guard us from discouragement, guard us from doubt, guard us from dismay, guard us from frustration and anger. Renew our hope, Lord. We would not give up coming to you in prayer, but that we would renew, redouble our efforts to bring to you our prayers and our desires, because you are faithful and you do answer our prayers. You do give us what we ask for, far more than we deserve. But but in all things, Lord, you are our great God. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.